I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This week on Democracy Sausage, we tackle our trust issues with news media, feel the kick of fake news from the Trump bump, and wonder just how many AFP raids it would take to get Australians out on the street Hong Kong style. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny. This podcast series is a joint production between the Australian National University and Policy Forum at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. Joining me here around the barbecue hot plate of politics and public affairs is my weekly partner in all this, Dr. Maria Tuffliger, who, like me, hails from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. Maria, hi. As a political scientist, it's a bit happening as always particularly those demonstrations in Hong Kong, which seem to have made at least some progress in uh, in recent hours. Yes, I, I believe a, a million – hello, everyone. I believe a million people went out into the streets of Hong Kong uh, yesterday. And to put that into context, there's only 7 million people in Hong Kong. So they're truly extraordinary um, displays of uh, civic – um, peaceful protest. Yeah, yeah. I guess we're what, all wearing black, so there's these amazing scenes of the streets just filled with these people coming from everywhere and uh, mostly wearing black and uh, really making their presence felt. Not something you see a lot in China. No, but I guess Hong Kong isn't really quite China, is it? And well, I think, that's their argument. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And I think that what's potentially quite interesting about these uh, protests in Hong Kong is that they've certainly um, forced uh, the uh, leadership there to withdraw or at least to postpone yeah, to, uh, suspend this, this. to suspend this legislation. Mm-hmm. But I guess it does sort of raise the question of what is the next uh, thing that will happen because Hong Kong is sort of in an unusual position unlike, say, other countries where we've seen these sort of protest-coloured revolutions mm. um, uh, and there are all kinds of sort of um, – legal and financial sort of uh, interconnections between China and Hong Kong that don't necessarily exist between other states that have experienced these kinds of um, mass movements. So whether or not um, this actually uh, produces the effect that the protesters want is kind of open to question or will we sort of see – you know, the Chinese authorities exert control through mm-hmm. other means that are less publicly visible, less through the legislature and more through other forms of enforcement. Yeah, it is an interesting question. I mean, it's, it's really obviously um, the suspicion of, of Hong Kongers is that uh, this extradition law, were it to come to pass, would see people transferred to the mainland to the just, justice system there and and particularly transferred there in their worst fears uh, for for political crimes, for for saying and doing things that are uh, critical of the government in Beijing and uh, and and of the regime, uh, it's a very reasonable fear, it seems to me, given China's record and given the undertaking they had at the time in 1997 of the handover from Britain, from the UK, uh, that they would have their legal independence maintained and that principle of the separation of powers to the extent that it exists there. So. 
um yeah it's it's a uh, you can you can certainly see the um the the uh substance of Hong Kong's complaints. I wonder though, and perhaps this is me just being a bit too optimistic, but I wonder whether there isn't uh, more progress made here than even it appears. Uh, the administration is saying that it's suspended this extradition bill. Uh, so as you say, it's kind of uh, at least theoretically possible that it will come back and maybe inevitable that it, was, that it will come back. But I wonder whether it isn't perhaps a bit of face-saving by the administration when they say suspended, they've actually decided, look, we're just coming can't, we can't do this. Um, the you know we, we lose so much legitimacy. The, the population has expressed its view with such numerical vehemence uh, that uh, I wonder. You know, maybe I'm being optimistic as I say, but maybe they when they have withdrawn it, uh, they're just not admitting they've withdrawn it because that would involve complete repudiation. Well, that's entirely possible. Um, and perhaps what will happen is a sort of a response of smaller. Uh, incremental chipping away of of uh, existing rights that has already kind of gone on in Hong Kong. And if I may make a segue, uh, perhaps yeah. we could sort of apply that to our own backyard. <laughs> yes. So, yes. Well, that's a very good point, Maria. We, we have a couple of excellent guests with us as we do each week. And today I'm very happy to uh, introduce Dr. Caroline Fisher. Caroline Fisher, who is an assistant professor in journalism and a member of the News and Media Research Centre at the University of Canberra, just up the hill from here. Uh, and she's uh, one of the authors of the Digital News Report Australia 2019. Uh, how are you, Caroline? I'm Welcome very to the well. Pod. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you around the hot plate, as we call it. <laughs> sizzle, <laughs> sizzle. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we, we can discuss all the issues uh, around uh, the uh, the sausage that is democracy, not just uh, in Australia, but uh, more broadly. We'll, we'll come to that. And also James Mortensen who is a um, national security expert. He's with the uh, National Security College at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Welcome to you, James. Thank you very much. Obviously, a fair bit to talk about uh, in your space as well with, uh, you know, AFP raids in the past uh, recently and, uh, you know, the whole discussion of national security legislation, uh, national security issues, how that interplays with the freedom of the press, mm, which absolutely. for you, yeah. Caroline, is yeah. a, a big issue. Any thoughts uh, from either of you on what we were just talking about, the uh, the um, uh, situation in Hong Kong and the issues that throws up? Oh, look, only that, you know, listening to coverage of it today that, you know, there's more, more protests planned today and some more strikes. So, you know, this, it's people, clearly the public is, is seizing the opportunity and they're not, they've got a, obviously a minor concession, but they're not going to let it slide. So it's great to see that. And you um, think it is a, a minor concession? Well, at the moment, I mean, yes. I mean, as you say, they've put it on, they've got it on pause at the moment. They're, uh, you know. <laughs> well, thinking, that is quite a change though from where they were. They were the, the administration was, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, a, pushing forward and mm. standing resolute against these crowds over the last few weeks. So uh, it is significant, I think, that, you know, this has been suspended. Yeah, fabulous. Um, and, and, you know, people power still works. It's, it's, it's very positive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not quite sure I share the optimism, to be, yeah. to be frank. I think uh, people power has worked, but the cost of it is massive. And I, I, and I, I honestly, I can't, I can't express enough. Uh, the aura I have for for the people of Hong Kong to manage to pull it off, yeah. Um, but I mean, as far as I can see it, the 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 mainland government's done an extremely good job of finding an extremely niche, razor's edge piece of legislation to 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 push on to the Hong Kong government, mm. um, which really does 
and you know, hats Which off to the Hong Kong. Which is a very compliant government, isn't it? Right, and, and you know, hats off to the people to be able to identify just how serious it is and to mobilise. I, you know, I, I shudder to think that if a similarly well-crafted policy to achieve such ends were put in a lot of other places, especially Western governments, I don't, I don't know if we'd uh, we'd have the foresight to to um, to acknowledge it quite in the same way. So. Um, well, that's a very good question, isn't it? Would we have the foresight to yeah. actually acknowledge it? Would, do, we, do we have Australia? This is a live debate at the moment in Australia. We've had, I think it's uh, on one count, I saw 75 pieces of individual legislation or amendments uh, since 2001, since September 11, effectively, um, before which we had very little in this space. And, um, uh, you know, the, the argument is that increment by increment, our freedoms have been uh, eroded? Yeah, eroded, tightened, reduced. Uh, now, many people, I'd say the broad majority of Australians would be very conscious of the need for national security, be very conscious of um, a general desire to keep uh, terrorists out, to have our authorities monitoring the activities of people who would do us harm. We saw the appalling events uh, even recently in, in Christchurch earlier this year um, where uh, you know people plotting to do things in the name of you know political extremism. It's 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 rife, and not just uh, you know on the Islamist side, but uh, on the, on the mad right as well. Uh, so you know, in that context, it seems very difficult to imagine Australians really coming out in the streets and saying, "Please protect our rights." Does it have to be a, a really black and white case? I mean, of course, yes. From society to society, I'd say um, my mind, I suppose, goes back to. The issues that have really brought the people of Australia to the streets, which, in, in, to my mind, please correct me if I'm wrong, you know, are work choices in the Howard era, the yeah. Iraq war as well. I yeah. mean, they're, they're, in a way, they're two quite separate cases. Yeah. But I believe work choices was the biggest, from memory, or it was bigger than the Iraq war. Well, yeah, and and as you say, I mean, that's uh, it's it's a big demonstration, but you can sort of see where it comes from as well, because yeah. it's easy, much easier to organise big demonstrations if you use the, the resources of the union movement. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, uh, the other thing I'd say, I suppose, is that they were, it's a very partisan issue. Mm. Whereas, and, and something that's interesting, and maybe another, another segue, segue from a segue, but uh, is that, I mean, up until very, very recently, we're talking about those, those 75 or so pieces of legislation since 2001, mm. Um, especially after the Howard era, most of those pieces of legislation were bipartisan. Yes. So, and I think that's actually the important issue, yeah. right? Like, you know, uh, freedoms and liberties, these are abstract uh, concepts, whereas my penalty rates are completely concrete. Mm. Uh, but further to that, like, I think one of the things that is disappointing about the way this debate has been conducted over the last two decades is that, you know, we have an ad adversarial political system. And the price of that is you know, we turn on the news and we don't like watching it, right? But mm. uh, it does mean that we get um, uh, debates, right? That is supposedly the idea. It's yeah. war by other means. Mm. But on this issue, we what we haven't really seen is an actual debate because uh, both sides of politics have um, – uh, either been too afraid to to pursue these arguments because they've been in opposition. I'm, I'm talking about Labor here um, that has chosen to just sort of minimise difference on this issue. And and as a result of that, we've actually like lost a culture of being able to discuss these ideas freely and openly without uh, being accused of uh, putting the nation at peril and and discussing ideas and the implications of them 
shouldn't automatically be putting the nation at peril. We should be able to talk about these things uh, in our in our legislature and to have a stronger understanding of their implications without sort of essentially accusing one side of politics of, of being soft. Mm. It's interesting though. I mean, if you just, you know, when you said that, had that raid, had the had the raid on on the ABC mm. happened in Hong Kong, and and the raid on the journalist's house happened in Hong Kong, you know, I, I suspect there would have been similar marches about it. But but even you know, that, and that it is fascinating that we haven't yeah. that we you know that we haven't uh, taken to the streets about well, well, about I, I these offer press ex- freedom issues here. It's yeah, interesting. I agree. I agree. I can offer a sort of a partial explanation of it, not, not yeah. necessarily a justification, but. If you make that, you know, that, pose that same hypothetical. Mm. I mean, yes, I agree. In Hong Kong, that would have um, been seen differently, but mm. but the government doing it is seen differently as yes. well. We see our governments. Uh, I know we talk a lot as uh, about about yeah, <laughs> that's right. We talk a lot about declining trust in democracies and everything else, and it's obviously a legitimate issue. Mm. But we still in Australia have a, a pretty benign relationship with our that's government right. and with the state. Uh, we we see our governments as essentially doing good for us mostly, um, uh, and you know sometimes being incompetent, sometimes getting things wrong. Uh, you know, as Maria says, you know, we there's a sort of a level of disdain or distaste for the political combat, the arguments in parliament or whatever. But we essentially are pretty happy with our our politics as long as it doesn't. But there is in this creep, lives. isn't it? It is insidious that because we perceive them as benign, we actually voted for, for them, you know, through a democratic process, that there is this sort of insidious creep of taking away these sorts of freedoms. Whereas in Hong Kong, there's this external kind of power and they're very, you know, they're very alert yeah. to, to that and the threat of those, you know, well, their freedoms it decreasing. A, it's, yeah. So we're, yes, we, we well, are much less, I think, aware point. of... You can really see the end point. Like you can see, yeah. you can see China. You can see what kind of a state that's it right. is. You know, whereas I don't think that's necessarily as obvious here. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I feel in in a way when you're talking about a creep of, you know, the government's benign creeping towards more malignant. But I mean, only in these national security yeah, yeah. and the impacts on free speech. But I, I think maybe, if, you know, in my mind, I suppose I connect up the bipartisan issue, the fact that you know we use debate in a way to 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 stave off conflict or in lieu of conflict. Um, that that when Australians are going to march, they're going to march on a, on a partisan issue, uh, which makes it easy to mobilise and that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, I would be looking at it, I suppose, from a far more expanded point of view and, and thinking about the, necess- the necessity of opposition to what is essentially, at least in a, in a communicative way, a violent act, right? So I'm, I'm standing against you in, a, in an extreme way. In Hong Kong, it's a lot easier because the government is completely other. Right, so they're That's not right. part right. of the Hong Kong people. Exactly. Yeah. In our case, though, what I find worrying is that we are now starting to talk about the government being separate from the population. The government. And that's the most worrying trend in my mind for the last mm-hmm. 10 years is that government is now speaking as if it's separate from the population. Mm-hmm. And so as opposed to going from benign to, to, to malevolent, I'd prefer to see it, I suppose, as being united with the people or for the people, with the people, by the people, mm-hmm. to being a separate entity that we now feel the need to stand against. And mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. I think, is fundamentally worrying from a democracy. It's a really interesting yeah. point. Are, are, yeah. are you suggesting or are you, what are you referring to there is uh, the idea that, for example, there could be agents within the people who are acting against the people and the government is separate from the people and therefore is able to look at it objectively and pass laws that are aimed at protecting the majority. Well, I'd suggest what you said is where the government is coming from. 
Well, that's the purpose of mm. this is why, you know, I mean, in IR at least you talk about the difference between defence versus security and that change in the early 20th century. Like that is essentially that change. But I think part of this is, is I mean, I'm, to be clear, I'm not saying we shouldn't have security laws. Like that's not what mm. I'm saying. But we have seen a problem around deliberation. So, mm. you know, and it's, and you know, if um, it's not surprising then that people might feel separate from uh, executive power if there isn't the necessary deliberation around uh, these kinds of security issues, because the discourse we tend to get, and I, I think, I think you know, um, Labor has has had misgivings about every one of these pieces of legislation, but have effectively mm. um, chosen not to say anything about it, or have managed to achieve um, some changes through very high level committees that are generally not reported on. But if we're not going to discuss what kind of a society we want to be, right, which is sort of the point of Parliament. Um, uh, you know, in its highfalutin sense. Like, we shouldn't be surprised then that people are nervous and do not look to parliament or what they read in the media as 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 a part of a discourse that they participate in. But are yeah, they so, nervous? But are well, they nervous? Well, I mean, yeah, this okay, is, so, so, in a sense, this is the problem, isn't it? They seem reasonably compliant. I saw people saying in response to these raids on Twitter and, mm. and various other places on social media saying things like, oh, well, if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to fear, yeah. which is completely <laughs> missing the point Yeah, and uh, so when, that's, when you're having your house raided at 7 a.m. in the morning or whatever it is. I suppose where, I'm, uh, where I was trying to go, I suppose, with the, with the government and, and, the, and the difference is that in the last so, – so the nature of security is that – Obviously, your your sovereign object, your citizens, can turn against you. So, but you know, so we need to protect them until the moment we don't. So we need that mm. elasticity, and I think that's where the government's perspective, what you what you sort of put forward. But what I, the way that it's manifesting in the last, especially in the last five years, I'd say, is far more of an amount of, um, especially that the most recent or the, the the sort of the logic behind the most recent raids is certainly one of the government saying, well, look, we're the government, we have these these responsibilities, but we also have these rights and this access to this information. Whereas you, the people, you simply you cannot, will not, do not. There's a there's a fundamental separation between what the government is capable of, what the people are capable of, what the mm. government knows, what the people know. Mm. Um and and I think that that's coming from the top down. That's coming from the from the it, government out. It outwards. is and you get it from officials that 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 you know tell you privately that if you knew what I knew, you would support these laws. Yep. Um, or, or words to those effects, and 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 you kind of think, well, that's that's quite worrying. But it, it's also an understandable mindset, I suppose. Well, if you, it's also if you're necessary. Only... I mean, there is a certain level of secrecy, of course, that of is course, required for the wheels of democracy to turn. You know, and and so you know, yeah, there so are you threats. can't we, you yeah. can't make a lot of that stuff public. I mean, people would just panic. You know, you know. <laughs> so the the danger, though, in in my mind at least, is the. If we aren't extremely careful in policing that balance, you've essentially created, whether by by word or by deed, you've created that fundamental separation between sure. the people and the government. And in so doing, the government then decides what the public in, what's in the public interest, mm. which because they are fundamentally f- separate from the public, well, is no longer democratic. And that goes to Maria's point, which I think is an excellent one about the role of parliament. You, you need to have some contest to these ideas and you need to have robust processes for oversight uh, and, on and an ongoing basis. And other states basis. do, right? Yeah. You know, like and in the, and in it's the through US, that process yeah. you actually find weaknesses, you find areas of overreach, you find powers that uh, don't need to be there, perhaps other areas where the powers do need to be strengthened. But you get better laws out of the process mm-hmm. and the oversight – 
needs to be robust as well. I think Karen Middleton made a point on Insiders not last week, you know, most recently, but the week before, and I think she was talking about the makeup of the parliamentary, you know, yeah, um, the joint committee on that's right, and that they haven't had um, minor parties on there. Mm. That you know they've stacked them with the major parties, and of course, yes, they've been. Because uh, they don't want to be wedged uh, politically, and, and so they agree with each not other. Not to be seen as That's being right. in well, some way equivocal on national security. Because look how it plays out in the media, and they just get wedged all the time. It's mm. being weak on security, and you just can't. You know, it's it's you know the way that plays out yeah. in the media, and the way they you know that the government would work that. I mean, it would just be. Yeah, you know, catastrophic. Let, so, let's let's turn to that uh, that media <laughs> side of things. Uh, you, uh, we mentioned before uh, your role in the Digital News Report Australia yeah. 2019 that's just out. Can you just run us through a couple of those findings? Well, look, I mean, I think particularly relevant to this conversation, some of those findings. I mean, we asked about news, but we also asked about politics. So um, what we find in, in relation to politics particularly, and I think this is relevant to this discussion, is that two-thirds of us actually have low to no interest in politics as news consumers. So it's only probably the people in this room. <laughs> and, and hopefully the people listening um, to us. <laughs> who have, uh, you know, high or very high interest in politics. Um, similarly, um, we have relatively low interest in news. Not, you know, we don't have. We're not massively high news consumers uh, in comparison to other countries in the survey. So the survey is actually the Australia report is part of a global survey, which is coordinated by the um, Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford, and we we're their their Australian partner. And there are thirty eight countries in the survey. Of the thirty eight countries in the survey, we Australians are the lightest news consumers. That means that we consume. We, more Australians consume uh, news once a day or less than any other country, uh, you know, in the survey, which is interesting. We we have um, slightly lower interest in news generally as well out of the thirty eight countries, and we have uh, slightly lower interest in politics. Do we have a lower interest in uh, international news, for example? Or we didn't you, ask no. about that category this year. We have asked in the past. Right. No, actually, interestingly, I mean, when we look at. Um, when we have asked in the past about different types of news, sport, entertainment, celebrity, whatever, you know, weather, international news, local news, we're most interested in local news. Uh, we're quite interested in international news, actually. Wow. Uh, we're not very interested in politics. Uh, that's always down the bottom. Um, yeah, so that so that they're two, I think, particular yeah. uh, findings around interest in news and interest in politics, which I the... think are very relevant to this, you know, Perhaps why why haven't we been up in arms about you know these recent uh, raids on on the press etc. Um, well, you know our our interest in politics is actually quite low. So how long has the survey been running for? This is the fifth year we've done it in Australia. Um, so we've, we're starting to get you know longitudinal data now, um, which is you know and. What we've seen is that over the time that the survey, we've been doing the survey, that actually interest in news has, has actually fallen in Australia over that five years. And But it's also, when you think about that, you map it across, it's been a five years of decline actually Interest. in the news media landscape. You know, we've had closures and job losses and um, contraction uh, as far as um, or an increase in, in um, what do we say, it, we say that Australia's got the most concentrated media, you know, lack of diversity as far as ownership goes. So we've seen all of those things sort of amplify in the last five years. Um, and I think that we're seeing that um, 
reflected in the data. All right. We're going to take a break now, but we'll come back and talk about some of those issues further because I'm very interested in, uh, you know, particularly that issue around concentration Mm -hmm. and how that plays with what what you might also call a bit of an explosion in news sources uh, through, you know, in the digital age, which is, uh, you know, perhaps working against some of that concentration. Uh, We'll take a break now. If you're uh, wanting to contribute to this conversation at any point or to suggest uh, uh, questions for us or subjects that we might look at in future pods, our Twitter handle is APPS Policy Forum, Apps Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. And uh, we'll take a break and come back and talk about digital news and other issues in just a moment. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Um, Maria has a, an interesting question here, which is really in that space uh, about uh, trust and digital news and so forth. Yeah, there was a great conversation on the on the Facebook group um, between, um, I hope I pronounced this correctly, Agnoretta Hunter and Liam Hughes. And uh, essentially what uh, their discussion boiled down to was how can we improve discussion and debate in uh, the media, which, uh, you know, seems to be linked to trust? What do we think? Well, it's a, that is an interesting point. It, it almost sort of resonates with what we were saying about, you know, Parliament having a responsibility to debate. Is there too much agreement in the media? Is there a, a sort of a, a narrow band, in, at least in the mainstream media, that's got to be a function of concentration in the media? Obviously, uh, Agreement? I mean, there's a hell of a lot of negativity. And I have to say that the Digital News Report shows that. I mean, a lot of, you know... 44% of us think that the news is too negative. Mm. And again, when you compare us to the uh, other countries in the survey, we are right up there with negativity. I mean, the perception of Australia, news in Australia being negative is, is very high, even, you know, compared globally. So I think that, um, I think that really, and there's a link between negativity and people avoiding news and uh, people feeling fatigued by news, et cetera, uh, and, and trust. So I think we need to Think about all of those things. Mm. I think there's a lot of messages in actually in our report about the way the news is actually presented there, um, and people's engagement with it. Are there demographic um, like differences? Are, are certain segments of the population particularly disengaged? Yeah. So young people and women right. <laughs> are the most disengaged. Yes. Um, I noticed that women in the report uh, are less inclined to pay for news. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on the whole, so if you think about the, you know the percentage of the population who is prepared to pay for online news at the moment, it's 14 
percent. It's, it's basically on par with the global average, which is thirteen percent. So we're slightly above there. Mm. Um, but when you do look at that demographically, um, women uh, are only ten percent of women are prepared to pay for online news, whereas seventeen percent of men are, uh, and young people are much less prepared to, and uh, and women in particular. Is this a function of trust? Do you think? I mean, trust it, it, is a really interesting question, and it's it's something that we need to really unpack a bit further. But what's really clear over the five years of the survey? So trust in news this year is slightly down from last year, but over the five years, you know, you look at the trend, it actually hasn't moved that much really, you know, longitudinally. So it's at 44%. It's been in the sort of the mid-40s most of the time. We had a bit of a peak last year. Sorry to interrupt, but there's no sort of blip or noticeable change in the trend lines as a a result of the advent of, you know, fake news. Yes, there was. I mean, last year we did have a a general uh, trust in news was higher last year. and we do attribute that largely to sort of the fake news awareness and our, I guess, our own Trump bump in a sense. But again, it's fallen down again this year. Globally, there's been a drop in trust in the media, about 2% across the 38 um, countries. Um, the interest, where we have seen the biggest, but there's been a drop, our, our trust in news on social media has also fallen, our trust in news, even in the in the news sources that we use personally, which is always mm. higher mm. than the general perception of news trust. But even that's fallen. Um, the thing is, though, people, when we when you think about the, the economics of news, people will still pay for news even if they don't trust it. There is a link between payment of news and trust. Those who trust news are more inclined to mm. pay for it. But it's not magnitudes of, you know, there's not you know, 20 you know, points difference. It's one of the factors. Trust is one of the factors. We all consume news for a range of reasons. And this has been studied for decades, actually. Mm, you know, mm. why do people, you know, questions, why on earth would you pay for news if you don't trust it? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons for entertainment, just for having shared common knowledge for, you know, mm. to be able to communicate with your, your, your colleagues and friends, having a sense of what's going on in the world. So trust is one of the factors and it is important, but it's not everything. Yes. James, do you think there's a, a sort of a correlation here between low levels of trust in the media and therefore one imagines low levels of public affection and not being too animated about police raids on uh, the ABC or on a journalist's home? I mean, is this a preoccupation of people like us and the average punter doesn't, uh, doesn't sort of worry? As someone who probably unhelpfully still sees themselves as a rather recent immigrant to Canberra, uh, yes. All right. So, so, so you're not fully Welcome in the, to bubble. the bubble. Thank you. Yeah. No. Um, it's it's comfortable in here. I'll definitely give you that. Um, <laughs> the padded cell. Yeah. Like <laughs> to a degree. It's a I mean, I think it's it's helpful to go back to the idea. Um, well, and at least in my mind, it's helpful to go back to the idea of 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 who are who are we and who are we standing against. Mm. I mean, I think everybody will ask that question when it comes to a heated debate or to any sort of you know conflict, whether it's real or imagined. Um, and I don't imagine that many people in Australia really see themselves as allied with any news media, let mm. alone specific parts of the news media. I so, suppose this goes back a little bit to what we were talking controversial. about. Controversial. I might challenge you on that, James. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, whether it's strongly allied and, and true, you know, personal identification with a brand, I can't, I can't sort of prove that one way or another, but I can show you, you know, there's definite uh, divisions. We're quite polarised in the way that we consume our news media. I mean, people who identify as left-wing oriented uh, news uh, consumers yep, and right-wing, yep. wow, there are very distinct brands and, and you know. <laughs> yeah, and I certainly expect, you know, a, a bleeding heart leftist to, to read The Guardian and a, and a, and a strong, <laughs> a, a strong iron-fisted conservative to watch Sky News. Yeah. Um, 
But I would I'm, – I'm wondering, I mean, you, you might be able to – I hope you can tell me um, – whether – the rates of those consumption that's consumption amongst those groups might be higher than the general population, but still as a percentage of the overall population is still quite low. Gosh, that's yeah, interesting. Well, I think it's probably right, just because then you know the concentration of people is pretty low, isn't yeah, it? And it's about fourteen percent. Oh, that's the people who pay. pay. But even as you say, so essentially two thirds of the people don't really care about politics or don't at least they don't consume politically well, so what – this is actually very interesting. So those people who can identify, who do say, yes, I have a political orientation somewhere on the spectrum, they are more interested in news, more interested in politics, higher consumption, et cetera. So by the sheer fact that they actually have some kind of political identification means that they are more engaged generally and therefore that they have higher rates of news consumption. It's the people in the middle, uh, people who identify as centre, and then this big chunk of people who say that they don't know what their political orientation is. The don't knows are the fascinating ones. And yep. they have low interest in politics, low interest in news. They consume it the least. They uh, did I think I read in the report? Sources, yeah, they're, they're the least likely to uh, critically analyze the Absolutely. source they're reading. Least, least likely right. to fact check. Right. So, if we're talking about mobilizing a large group of people for for something, we're essentially. Um, I can't think of uh, a metaphor that doesn't or an analogy that doesn't involve swearing. But we're, <laughs> you know, it's it's going to be hard work. Um, so I think yeah. that's it. And something else that I suppose that. I can tangentially tack on to that that I was thought of when 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 you were um, running through the report just then yeah. is that you know are there any people that are particularly disenfranchised? Well, young people and women, and you know that it's accidental that the people who speak the less the least in the media are the ones that are least likely to consume it. Mm. I think would yeah I would I would like to think I might be drawing a long bow, but it's indicative of the fact and, that people aren't really engaged. Yeah. They're not seeing themselves. They're not seeing themselves in. They're not seeing themselves reflected in the media that they're in. That they're well, in. certainly not. Those main the new the main brands. I mean, I think what we also see then when you look at the the online only brands, things like mm-hmm. BuzzFeed, etc. Well, that's where the young people are, yeah. and, and, um, and, and, and it's also true. Of, Facebook, yeah, yeah, it's more, you know, it's more personal. It's more likely to yeah. reflect who I am. Yeah. It's also can, true of the management of those media organisations yeah. as well. They are dominated by people who are neither young or women. <laughs> what um, are you saying? Well, <laughs> they're old blokes, people like me. Yeah. No, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, and we've seen this issue around diversity, and it's played out really heavily in the UK. You know, and the BBC's made really big strides towards diversifying its staff because if you haven't got people in the newsrooms from different 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 ethnic backgrounds, different age groups, etc., socioeconomic experience, you're not going to be looking for stories. I mean, you know, I, I just got to say, uh, I think it was even last night. A good friend of mine um, from England, we were talking about Northerners, Geordies. And of course, she's, and I was like, "Well, they're they're still a bit oppressed, aren't they?" She said, "No, of course not. I heard them on the BBC." <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, They've arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and I think that is really actually it's 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 sad and funny. Um, hi, Kathy. But it's really also important, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and, and I, I mean, the ABC is making moves in that direction. What, what as it well. is, yeah. I turned on the drum yeah. the other night, for example, yeah. and uh, you know, the host was a, a woman. All of the guests were women, and that's yeah. not actually uncommon now to no. see that or to see uh, you know overwhelming dominance of women. So they are making a, a quite deliberate attempt to yep. go to different people to have more representative yep. panels. I, I see David Anderson, the uh, CEO, the uh, chief executive of the ABC, managing director, I think he's called, uh, has made this point today in in, in the media that uh, they that they're going to be looking at their panel shows uh, and looking at ways of uh, making sure that their uh, staff and on air 
people are, you know, broadly more representative of minorities. So yeah. uh, the, these things probably are important changes. But um, it, 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 overall, the, this, the problem seems to me still, and it's a really profound political problem, I think, Maria, um, and that is the fragmentation of media to the point where mm. we see people only going to the sources with which they already agree. You know, so so tell me something that I already think, yeah, uh, because that's what I call quality. And and, and we've any always journalist, done that, though, Mark. No, I think it's I no. think this business model journalism has got a lot worse. Yes, I, sure, but you know, and I look at my own family. You know, growing up, my father was conservative. He read the Australian. My mother was left wing. She read the Sydney Morning Herald. I mean, you know, I think they've all there's always been. But the Sydney Morning Herald was a pretty conservative paper for. A lot of that time. Oh, you know, it's editorialised in Now, folk. come on. Don't start defending the, the – I mean, it may well become more right-wing now. <laughs> I'm well, the former I, chief political correspondent <laughs> for the City Morning Herald. Um, yes, but, I mean, you know, I think trying to pretend that it was as, you know, as middle of the road or as, well, as conservative as the, as the Australian was. I mean, there's always been this division between Fairfax and, and the News Limited or the Murdoch-owned papers. I think that division is starker now, and I think yeah. that the advent of Sky News on the right as James mentioned before, I think uh, the Guardian, the Guardian's entry as a um, you know solid progressive uh, media source. I think uh, you know these these media entities now have quite strong constituencies, yep. and there is a tendency, and you see it in social media. Perhaps we're just seeing it articulated more clearly now, but. Any journalist who's had any prominence knows this. You get people coming up to you in the street or in cafes or whatever and telling you, usually very positively, I'm not complaining here, and they say, I really like what you write. And as much as you are always flattered by that, you kind of know that what they're actually saying is, I agree with the position that you take as an analyst because people do conflate agreement with quality. Whereas I like to think as a critical thinker, I like to think that I will always try and read the stuff that I don't think I'll agree with. Um, and, I, and I can actually name some people in, in, in the Australian, for example, who's, you know, who, who probably argue a different line to me analytically, but whose arguments I always enjoy reading. You're the minority. So can I ask about <laughs> uh, sort of the sort of fact-checking and fake yeah, news sure. uh, dimension? So, yeah. so when you say uh, the don't-knows are less likely to fact-check, like what, do you, what, what does that mean, you know? <laughs> so we asked people this year about were they concerned about what was real and fake on the internet and we also asked them about whether or not they engaged in any sort of um, verification behaviours and there was a range of them. There's seven or so of them and, you know, like, you know, do you compare sources? You know, you read a story in one paper, do you then go and check it with another one or whatever? Mm. Um, do you do you share stories that you think you think might be a bit dodgy, uh, for instance, or do you, have you um, stopped following uh, less reliable sources and begun following, you know, more reliable sources, et cetera? So that, they were the sorts of questions that we asked. Um, and when overall, can I say, most most of the news consumers in our survey aren't doing any of those things, but there, there are signs that people are. So about a third, I guess, roughly, if you look on average, of the news consumers are doing one or some of those things. Uh, the, the the one that people were engaging in most uh, was um, yeah, checking against other sources. Um, and about, about 36% said they were doing that and about 20% said that they uh, had, wouldn't share a story from someone they didn't trust. 
Uh, that's you know not they weren't doing that anymore. So, so that's that peer verification that's really important. Yeah, that's right. And other about twenty two percent said that they were now using more reliable news sources and stopped using dodgy ones. So that's good. You know, um, mm. it'll be interesting to track that over time because that's the first time we've asked that. But so when we correlate that those behaviours against political orientation, those who identify as left, centre, right, or don't know. Mm. The don't knows were the ones who were the least likely and centre, might I say, uh, but don't knows particularly, uh, were the least likely to do any of those things. Right. And is that just because they're least likely to know stuff about politics? Uh, no, it's just because they're less engaged. It's just another sort of correlation that which sort of identifies their, their lack of engagement in news generally and, and politics. I suppose the, the risk... Not oh, risks, maybe not the right word, but the uh, the cost of them sharing something that yeah. isn't necessarily true is lower because they care less. Possibly, um, yes, and or the risk of them, you know, but that's also higher uh, in the sense that they're also more vulnerable. So if someone, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and and in the context, as a personal then, cost, yes. Yeah. But then if you in the context of the federal election and you think about the the amount of political ads that you know and the alarmist uh, political ads that were on TV and social media, etc. Uh, these people are less likely to check any of that and uh, and potentially share it. I mean, there's still 80% of people who are willing to share a dodgy ad or a dodgy post. So, um, wow, and these people are the most vulnerable to that. Yeah, it is. It, I, I, my instinct or my sense is that these things have become more stark. Now, it is, as I said before, I think it is entirely possible also that we have measure, measurements now that we didn't have yes. before. We, we get to see what people, what consumers think in real time now. I mean, mm. it used to be you'd write a story, you know, as you know, as a newspaper journalist, you'd write a story and two or three days later, a a, a letter or maybe a couple of letters might appear mm. in the letters to the editor page. That was essentially your feedback. The good old days. Yeah. And your editors had not much more feedback than that. They might get you know, four or five letters on a particular story and that would say that it had touched a, a nerve or whatever. But that was pretty kind of – I mean, a lot of news judgment went into deciding what was on the front page and uh, there wasn't a lot of feedback. I mean, they, they cared about circulation obviously. So in the long run, uh, you know, they, they were monitoring, I suppose, what they were doing. But um, nowadays, of course, you have real-time interaction with every single story. I mean, I know as a so newspaper, you know, you'd be writing a story, you'd move on to the next story and suddenly you'd be getting hostile social media feedback from it, you didn't even realise it was published. You know, it was like you literally filed it ten minutes ago, and it, and uh, and suddenly it's up. And uh, I think it's very. I think there's a real temptation for journalists in that circumstance yes. to start playing to the audience because you get very positive feedback. I know in the uh, in the Abbott period, for example, any stories we ran that were critical of the Abbott government were on Fairfax were you know very did, did a lot of traffic very quickly. Mm. I, you know, not, you might be careful what you wish for in the sense that. I think going forward, though, that trend is going to reverse in the sense that um, – so the Indian election recently had a big problem with WhatsApp. Yes. Um, which, you know, we sort of took note of generally in the media and, uh, you know, tangentially and said, oh, well, that's a bit of a shame and, you know, social media at it again. Thanks, suck. Um, Can you explain but, what happened so, for our Sorry, listeners? yes. So, um, so f- for those who don't know, uh, the Indian – WhatsApp is actually the social media platform of choice um, and – for those who don't use WhatsApp, myself included, um, it's essentially um, it's more about direct messaging. Yeah. Um, the the political parties in India though had huge, like we're talking millions of users in a single conversation, um, and they could broadcast their uh, their information directly to voters. The problem though with WhatsApp is that it's end to end encrypted. Yeah, so the only people right, who are yeah. privy to what that message contains is the people who send it and people so who receive it. So you could it. basically broadcast, as you say, uh, to that very special group. You could yep. broadcast untruths, inaccuracies, yep, lies, and, 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 and actually, not be accountable for it. Um, I think – I can't remember these, his 
exact position within the party, but a very high-ranking uh, member of the of the ruling party in India boasted publicly that they could make whatever, whatever whether it was true or not, they could make it real. They could make the voters engage with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and on, unrelated to the election, um, you know, India's also had problems with WhatsApp with, uh, like they've had lynchings as a result of WhatsApp messages, mm-hmm. messages and murders and all sorts of terrible things. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we look at that and say, well, that's a shame. Uh, we look at that and we think, well, yeah, we've got our hands full, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Mark's given us, sorry, Mark Zuckerberg, he's mm-hmm. um, given us a, a, a nest of issues that we've got to deal with. Um, but it's just around the corner mm-hmm. in the sense that a little something that passed along with little fanfare is the fact that Facebook Messenger, Instagram Messenger and WhatsApp Messengers will all, the back end will roll together for the whole world probably by the end of this year. That's so cheery thought. That's a, uh, we've already, and we saw in this election, the risk that poses in the sense of an unregulated messaging platform yep. in the form of WeChat um, and not being able to track down where those where those messages came from and the cost of what those messages were yes. going to do. Yes. Um, I mean, we're, we're on track for it in yeah. three years. Yeah, actually, I mean, one of the, I guess, the little discussed parts of our um, our survey this year, we do ask about groups and um, and the use of WhatsApp and Facebook uh, private groups for sharing news, et cetera, because of this trend that's happening uh, globally, and that is increasing here. That's absolutely, a fundamental challenge to democracy, really, isn't it? I mean, it, yep. it, 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 it absolutely. If we talk about declining trust, that could just corrode it in a in an exponential way. Yeah, but if I if I may, I'd really like to compare the two halves of the conversation that we've essentially had, yeah. right? So so. Representation in in politics, representation in the news. Are we are the people part of you know are the people in the government connected? Are they not? Are they fundamentally separate? And I think the government has shown that, at least in the way that it wants to control information, it sees itself mm-hmm. as fundamentally separate to the population, and we're going to have to respond to that. The media, then, um, I, I I I can't see any way around the fact that there is a correlation between representation in news media and your willingness to consume it. Mm-hmm. Like there's a fundamental separation between the news media. Like does this media represent me? And then the rise of obviously social media based news because it does represent me. I, I I'm I'm willfully communicating with that. Well, right? this is sort but of then can sorry, can connecting those two elements together um, compared to the rise of something like a WhatsApp, mass WhatsApp group, I mean to to to, to sort of meld them all together. We're still fundamentally dealing with with our lack of connection to the mechanisms that allow us to come together as a polity. And if we don't Really analyze that on every, on all those levels, the media, on the political level, and our own behavior to ourselves. I mean, because in a dark, nasty way, I could say that those those WhatsApp groups are precisely democracy realized. Like we are willfully coming together and creating a doxa, creating a, a group conception. And I don't think it's right. I'm not saying I support it at all. And I, but but in lieu of what? What are we going to replace it with? Can I say just the use of those groups? So what we find, you know. One of the reasons why, particularly in countries where there's lower levels of democracy and things, people do retreat to those groups mm. to discuss news and politics because yeah. of the fear of reprisal of doing it publicly. They don't want to talk about it publicly online. And actually, Australians are quite reluctant to discuss politics online. I mean, that might not be your experience on, you know, the, the, very, the fringe on Twitter, you know, who are, you know, hyper, uber active, you know, yeah. but that doesn't reflect, you know, the rest of the, the population. But people who... Um, who are reluctant to discuss their politics online, they will then go into these groups. That's right. And we uh, and, and it's unregulated, though, as far as mm. fact goes. And, we, mm-hmm. you know, if we've sure. got a problem now with, you know, uh, misinterpretations or, uh, you know, dark interpretations of motives of opponents and so forth, that's that's small beer compared to the sort of, uh, you know, the yeah. kind of nightmare scenario you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, so maybe in that sense it's a matter of cons- considering how – 
it's a battle. Like you mentioned Twitter and, and the mm. fringe. I mean, mm. the, the fringe on Twitter are essentially committing in a, are in, a, in warfare, right? And it's not surprising that the, the majority of people see that battle going on and say, "Well, I don't want to get involved," and they retreat. Uh, but if 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 discussing truth and the nature of our polity in a public space is a battleground. I mean, we're fundamentally doing it in the wrong way. But it's always yeah, been a right. battleground and uh, the change in technology and media has always changed the way we do politics. You know, we used to have yellow journalism newspapers that used mm. to just tr- print absolute lies and rubbish. And then, you know, we had the rise of radio, which changed the way that politicians used to do stump speeches. Television massively disrupted political parties' capacity to communicate. And the same is true for democracy. And so I guess what I would sort of say to you listeners is if you don't like it, participate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think on that... uh uh, optimistic note, uh, perhaps optimistic in some ways anyway, uh, we'll wrap up there. Thanks so much, Caroline Fisher. It's been extraordinary mm. having you along and hearing about Thanks that. Thanks a lot. Thanks report. to both of you. And James Mortensen, uh, thank you very much indeed. And we'll thank look you. forward to talking to you all again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.